Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Tom Boyd, and he'll be answering your most important questions on Mongolia. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form on the right-hand column. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Tom Boyd about Mongolia, a one-of-a-kind adventure. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. Before we introduce Tom, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in the drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Tom's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form. We'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away some free passes to uh, the Fly Fishing Show, courtesy of Ben Ferminski of the Fly Fishing Show. So uh, hang in there for that. And we'll also be giving away a copy of Tom's soon-to-be-published book called Trout, Salmon, and Char, courtesy of Wild River Press. So um, to win these passes or Tom's new book, Trout, Salmon, and Char, you'll need to be one of the people that answer the questions at the end of the show. Uh, the question will be something we talk about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, and uh, you may win one of these three prizes. So you have three chances to win tonight in the Q&A contest. So uh, take good notes, listen up, and uh, maybe you'll win. Our guest tonight is Tom Boyd. Tom is a fishing consultant, instructor, outdoor writer, editor, and lecturer. He has over 50 years of experience as a catch-and-release fly fisherman. As a professional fisherman, he has traveled the world in pursuit of fresh and saltwater species. He specializes in game fish behavior and developing techniques to catch even the toughest species. As a fishing advocate, he champions the sport to everyone. Tom's book, Saltwater's Greatest Game Fish Techniques and Tactics to Catch the Top 35 Species, 
uh, with notes on rankings and speed. It was published by Stackpole Books and is available on Amazon or from Stackpole. And then, of course, his recent book that will be uh, hopefully off the presses in December was uh, Trout, Salmon, and Char from Wild River Press. Well, Tom, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you, Roger. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, I'm good to have you safe and home <laughs> after what, what I'm sure we're going to find out is an incredible adventure here. So uh, we're all I'm very anxious to hear about it. So, um, and like we said in your bio, you know, you fished all over the world, and we're going to talk about Mongolia tonight. Um, what? I want to get into the country and what it was like there and so forth, but before I even do that, what made you uh, consider going there? I mean, what prompted you to, to do this, to set up this whole adventure? Well, Roger, as you know, we, uh, my son Jeff and I, who's the co-author of uh, uh, our new book, Trout, Salmon, and Char, we're not only professional fly fishermen, but we've been researchers for years. I, I've been for over 40 years, maybe 45 years, uh, Jeff uh, has been with me doing research on, well, saltwater fish, but uh, more recently on, uh, for quite a while, on freshwater fish, and, and particularly salmonids, and some of the rarest salmonids on earth, and some the only ones that I'm aware of uh, that we haven't caught were in Mongolia, so it was absolutely on the top of my bucket list. You know, they have incredible taimen, uh, uh, which are the largest uh, uh, salmon trout. They have lenac, which are the oldest. They've got a bunch of different kind of graylings, and um, we just wanted to go and find out about them. You know, we write about a lot of uh, species, and this was a blank for us. We researched them, but from afar. We wanted to get up close and personal and find out about these species and uh, and catch them. Good. Let's talk about Mongolia because it's uh, one of those um, uh, wilderness areas still in, in many respects and hard to get too far away. Um, I think we all have a general sense of where it is, but you want to describe its position and maybe a little bit about you know its uh, yes, well, it's where in... it's stuck. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's in stuck is a good good term. It's in Central Asia, and it's stuck between Russia and China. <laughs> it's yeah. completely landlocked, and uh, you're right about it being. Um, it's not a very populous country. In fact, of all the countries in the world, it has the second lowest population density. Only uh, only Greenland has a lower uh, population. It's got about 3 million people, and half of them live in its capital, and the other half are nomads spread throughout the the steppes, living much like they did way back in the days of uh, Chinggis Khan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think last year I listened to the audio book on Chinggis Khan and uh, was amazed that such a empire was built out of, uh, you know, an area such as Mongolia. It, it seems hard to believe that he almost conquered. Yeah, when you read, yeah. as a matter of fact, he conquered more than any other ruler conquer, you know, from the uh, the Greeks uh, or the Romans, uh, the Huns, uh, anybody. He, uh, his, um, he ruled from Europe uh, to the Pacific. It was incredible. Right. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Um, 
how many square miles is it? Uh, how big is the, the country? Well, it's a little over 600,000 square miles, which means it's about, uh, it's about uh, a sixth the size of the United States, and it's about two and a half times uh, the size of Texas. So, okay. uh, you know, it's a big country. It is truly yeah. a big country. What makes it even bigger, and I mean really big, is that it barely has a road system. I mean, a couple of the larger cities are uh, are connected, but once you get outside of the capital, you know, you're pretty much running on on the steps over roads that that don't exist, or you're just driving wherever you can. Yeah, yeah, that's um, uh, that was one of my questions. Is um, you know what what was the topography like there? So so really, just no fences, I take it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you couldn't no. do that in the West United States. You run into a fence and, you know, no time at all. Um, so, unfenced. Well, the topography, though, is really different. I mean, it, for the topography, if you get on the south, most of your listeners probably heard of the Gobi Desert, and that's where it's at. It's in southern uh, Mongolia. And if you – it's completely different. If you go to the eastern part, that's the Amur River Basin, and it's one of the largest protected areas in the world. It's huge. If you go to the north, uh, and that's where we were mostly, the central and the north areas, and that's the lakes area. And they have lakes up there, for example. We stayed in a, uh, a gear camp, a soft-sided uh, structure on Lake Kosoval, and I'm not pronouncing that right, but it's it's the um, second purest lake in the world next to Lake Baikal. And, in fact, the river that drains it, the Selenge, goes into Lake Baikal. And that lake, when it the waters are so pure there, it's so incredible. In the winter, they freeze over. The people will clean the snow off it, uh, the lake, and they can look through several feet of ice and see the, the water below and the, the animal life that's in it. You know, And then you go to the west western part, and that's mountains. They have mountains that are over 17,000 feet. So the topography of the country is very, very diverse. Yeah, yeah. So you were primarily in the northern part. Um, you, uh, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of it. Um, that's where you spent your, your time, close to the border, or? I'm, I'm sorry, Roger, I lost you there. I, Okay. I said, uh, what part of Mongolia did you go to then for the fishing? Well, when we went fishing, we went to the north-central part. We stopped by and okay. fished uh, several rivers, but our goal, when we first went there, we were going to fish the Egg River and the Ur River. They're very famous. But we had the opportunity through, you know, Fly Shop Mongolia, who are native uh, Mongolians, to fish an area where no Westerners had ever fished before. And this is the Shishkid Tengus uh, National Park. And it's a, a really, really protected area, Roger. It was, uh, uh, but we had the opportunity to fish there and it was, it was difficult to get there. We, you have to keep in mind, we were in, uh, our trip was more than three weeks and we were in Mongolia on the ground for over 19 days. And a lot of those days were just trying to get to where we were going. It's uh, extremely remote. Again, no roads. We drove across the steps and up mountains. And when I got home, I calculated that uh, 
uh, as the crow flies, we had driven about 1,200 miles. And believe me, you know, it was never in it as the crow flies. We, I don't think we ever drove in a straight line. We were up and down and sideways, and it, it was it was just exciting going where we went. And the only thing we we had was dead reckoning, and we did have GPS, though. But a number of times we had to stop and ask the nomads for directions. And, uh, and they were so friendly. I mean, the nomads, they're unbelievable. I mean, this is such a rich culture. And some of them invited us into their homes, and it was incredible. It was really wonderful. Now, you had mentioned this. Um, now, did you use the outfitter there? Um, uh, yes, in, we uh, did. We, okay. We, we did, yes. We, we, we went there originally. Uh, my lifelong friend Jim Newman is an outfitter here with Triple Dare in California. And Jim had, uh, he, like me, he's traveled all over the world and he went to Mongolia a couple of years ago through Travel Nomad, and he just fell in love with the place. And he that's another reason that I went there. Jim, who I trust, he's the most honorable person you'd ever want to meet, and he called and said, Tom, you, you will not believe this. This this was his favorite trip, you know, ever. And, again, he's been – Jim is 76 and has been traveling around the world forever. And so that was really uh, – uh, and th- through them I met – Fly Shop Mongolia, and while we were there, I went fishing with Fly Shop Mongolia. In fact, they had to send a crew ahead the week before we went there to try to blaze away and find a, a campsite on the Shishged River. And we wanted to fish there because where we fished, nobody had ever fished before. And they said that the chances of catching these rare giant taimen were were better there, that there were better chances of catching trophy fish there than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, the um, now are they the only outfitter there? Are there other outfitters? In, in no, there, there are several other outfitters there. There are, okay. um, I know Sweetwater Travel goes there. I think um, there is... Um, a Mongolian Outfitters. Uh, there are a couple, but they have, um, as does Fly Shop Mongolia, they have uh, camps on the Egg River, the Ur River, the famous, famous rivers. They also have, in the Amur drainage, the Onion River, and the it's B-A-L-J, Bals River. And these are, this is in the homeland of Chinggis Khan, and these are also excellent rivers and in a national park. But as far as I know, Fly Shop Mongolia is the only one that can access the area that we went to in the uh, Tangus Shingad National Park. Okay. Uh, on a normal, it sounds like your trip was a bit um, uh, different than maybe what the, the average five. You can say that. Going again. Yeah. What is a, a normal trip? Do, do people go there for a week normally, like other places? Like yeah, well, normally a little longer. They okay. offer, say, six days fishing, but even the even the uh, eastern areas, like the Egg or the Ur, they're, uh, or the Onion, uh, they're a little difficult to get to. It's um, there for, I would say, on average, maybe an eight-day trip where you have six days fishing. Uh, for okay. For the the Shishgad, and by the way, 
kind of trips. Um, I, I talked to Fly Shop Mongolia because those kind of trips on the in the like the egg and so forth. They normally run starting in the mid six thousand dollar range, sixty five hundred, sixty six hundred, up to in the mid seven thousands. And we're starting a um, a program till they get well established. They have three lodges now, but until they get established in the United States, they're going to offer trips uh, in the mid three thousands plus fishing license or of about three hundred and thirty dollars. So we're talking in the high three thousand dollar range, under four thousand. The shish have, uh... is a different story altogether. I mean, the travel. Just to get there, um, the only way you could get there is by four-wheel drive vehicle where there are no roads, or it's possible that you might be able to fly in there by a helicopter, but uh, it takes many days each way just to access that area. Yeah. How do you get there by air? Well, we, we, Roger, we traveled, um, yeah, we went uh, from San Francisco uh, we went through Beijing, and we purposely had a day layover there so we could w- visit uh, the Great Wall. Uh, and it was it's such a long trip, it was nice to break up the trip. Uh, however, the I don't think we were, Americans are treated very well by the Chinese. Um, they're not. Oh. And so I think oh. that when we go back, and we're going to go back next year, uh, I think we're going to go through Seoul in Korea. Interesting, yeah. Uh, yeah, hopefully Seoul will still be there. <laughs> they, they broke a lot of our – we had a lot of high, highly – I know my son's drone, they they just ripped it apart. I mean, um, I don't know if they were looking for something secret in the drone, but we, we had uh, – we're active with IGFA, and, and I had my granddaughters with me, and I had brought some certified uh, tapes and certified scales by IGFA, because the world records for taming and so forth are wide open for uh, for women, and yeah. the girls each caught world record fish, but we couldn't weigh them because they they smashed the uh, the scale. The the Chinese seriously, wow. Yeah, wow. it was. Jim Newman warned us of that. He said they, uh, the people and you know, and their airlines going through security and all that kind of stuff are not. They were not friendly, and they weren't to us. And I hate to say that, no. but it's true. And then you you went from Beijing straight to uh, to UB. The the capital's got five A's in it. Yunlan. It's Yunlan Bator is the capital. Everybody calls it UB, including me, because okay. I can't pronounce okay. it. But yeah, okay. we went straight there, and that. That's a fascinating town. That was more typical, Roger, of a big city. There's a million and a half people there, and the town is booming. Not so anywhere else in Mongolia, but they have uh, they, they only got their independence, Mongolia, from Russia in 1990. And by the way, the United States had a lot to do with that, with the breakup of the Soviet Union. And so Mongolians may not like the Chinese very much, or the Russians very much, but they like Americans, you know, and oh, uh, when when they got their independence in 1990, I don't think that would have happened if it were not for us, but since then, the Chinese and the Russians, they're, they're rich in minerals, and 
and oil and all kinds of things like that, and especially precious metals, gold, silver, and these are some of the most toxic kind of mines. And you could see evidence of mining over Mongolia. And I, I think a lot of times the Chinese and the Russians, you know, are not conservationists in their own country. That certainly didn't appear to be conservation-minded in Mongolia. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tom, time to take a quick break here. So uh, hang tight, and we'll be right back, and we'll talk more about uh, fly fishing in Mongolia. Looking for a shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish? and make it a Grand Slam, they can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhipRayKeyFishingLodge.com. Again, that's WhipRayKeyFishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Tom Boyd about Mongolia, a one-of-a-kind adventure. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Well, Tom, I always ask my guests, hey, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So tell us uh, beyond the Mongolia trip, uh, what else you're up to nowadays? Well, we, my son Jeff and I, again, we're researchers, and after Mongolia, we went up to the Drifter's Lodge in Alaska. We got back, and we're really uh, been working hard on our book and writing articles. As a matter of fact, I stayed up all last night and wrote an article for a magazine out of uh, uh, South Africa, The Complete Fly Fisherman. Uh, of course, I'm with Fly Fish America magazine. I'm their editor-at-large. Uh, we're doing, uh, Jeff and I are doing articles for them. Uh, we've been doing a lot of planning. Uh, we have just formed Team Boyd. Uh, I've had a lot of people that were interested in and following and fishing with me over the years, and but we were pretty much too much uh, involved in the research, and but now we're doing more and more of that, and we decided that we would form, and plus we have uh, my two granddaughters, uh, Julia and KK Boyd. They're 20 and 23 years old, and they're very interested in doing the kind of work that uh, Jeff and I do. So. We brought them along, and with a good friend and like an adopted son, Mike Marshall, we formed uh, Team Boyd to do uh, research. And what we're doing now for the first time, we're going to see if we can attract members that might want to fish with us. We have a lot of advantages. You know, we're going to be doing things like, you know, tagging and fin clips and uh, DNA, genetic work on fish, exploring new areas. And we get we are afforded, uh, we're very fortunate to be able to be, to fish some areas that are that are unique. I mean, we often explore areas where nobody has ever been before. And in any event, we want to try to pass some of this on, get some of the people uh, working. We're doing this now with Fly Shop Mongolia, and part of our agreement with Team Boyd and Fly Shop Mongolia is that we would work as best we could to help with the endangered uh, taman. They're, they're either threatened or endangered in most of their range, 
they used to be from Western Europe all the way to the Pacific. And now the last probably stronghold is in Mongolia and a few parts of Siberia. There are some funds like the Taman Fund and some organizations that are working, but we want to try to see if we can do some satellite tagging and find out more about these fish. Nobody really knows about Lennox or Taman or some of the various grayling species and Amur pike and some of the game fish that are in Mongolia. People, they don't even know, they don't even know they exist, let alone. They have a black, giant black Mongolian grayling that's only in one lake and river system. We're going to try for that next year. And they get huge, way bigger than uh, the five-pound, 15-ounce world record grayling. So we're pretty busy. We're starting on three new books as well. Oh, wow. You guys are busy. I'll say what Lefty Cray always used to say. I've completely failed retirement. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, well, so in your upcoming book, uh, Trout, Salmon, and Char will be uh, off the presses hopefully in December, you said? Is that Yes, is that it's right? coming in December. If anybody would like to get an autographed copy, they can contact, or if they're interested in Team Boyd, um, just contact me. They can see some information on Facebook, Tom Boyd on Facebook, but if they call me at T-B-O-Y-D-2020 at Yahoo.com, Tom Boyd. 2020 at yahoo.com, and I'm just setting up a new website right now. It's up. It's not complete, but it's uh, tomboydfishing.com, and also Fly Shop Mongolia. They're www.flyshopmongolia.com. So at those sites, you can find out more. And, again, if you're interested in Team Boyd, uh, and we're going to be able to get some discount in some places and do things that are – that are really fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Well, good. Well, thanks for sharing all that with us. Um, sounds yes, sir. exciting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and back we do to have uh, a good. <laughs> pardon me? I said, and we do have a good time. Yeah, I bet. I bet. We well, just love to my, do this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can tell, yeah. And uh, the places you go and the things you do, it's incredible. Let's talk more about Mongolia. Um, what was the weather like when you were there, and what would be the best time of year to go there fishing? When we were there, it was great. Um, I think Mongolia is different. China, uh, uh, Russia, a lot of that influences from the Pacific. But the air currents that influence Mongolia are from the Arctic. Of course, so is Siberia, part of Russia. But uh, so it can get chilly. It was beautiful when they were, we were there. I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, and the weather there was like it was here. It was really nice. But when we left in mid-September, uh, we could see in the mountains there was snow. The best time to go fishing the season, it opens in Mongolia June the 15th. The Taman and others spawn, and the season is closed. So it opens, and that's right after ISA, and that's a great time to go for all the species because, you know, the the Mongolian winters are long and harsh and the, the fish are all ravenous. Uh, by And the fishing stays good probably till mid-July. From mid-July to mid-August, um, the fishing is still good, but it's iffy. You get a lot of uh, uh, melt. You get a lot of runoff, and you get high water at that time. And 
Uh, I always say about high water, it's the kiss of death. So, but by mid-August to when it gets too cold, you know, mid-October, that's prime time. That's uh, the fish then are are hungry. They're getting trying to put on some calories for winter, and that's a great time. Okay, good. Um, and how did you plan out the, the trip? Um, did you let the outfitter take care of it, or did you tell them where you wanted to go, or how did, how did that the plan come about? Well, all of the with the uh, fishing that was. Um, uh, we handled that with Fly Shop Mongolia and with Jim Newman and Travel Nomads. But Travel Nomad and, and Jim Newman, they provided all kinds of activities. I mean, once we got into uh, UB, we visited some incredible museums. And we stopped. The, I mean, the girls, uh, my granddaughters, KK and Julia, you know, they rode horseback. They rode up to an ancient volcano. It was three hours horseback each way. Uh, they rode camels, uh, two hump, two hump camels. They're unbelievable. And so forth. We stopped, uh, at famous sites, um, all through Mongolia. A lot of them were destroyed by the Russians in the 1930s when they invaded Mongolia. But, uh, some of these areas, like Buddhist uh, monasteries and so forth, would be, uh, Roger, I mean, not in the middle of nowhere. And some of those survived. And we visited, uh, some of those. And it was, it was fascinating. I mean, it really was. Again, their their culture is so markedly different than anything any of us had any experience before, and it's so rich. It was incredible, and it's one of the few places that you can travel on Earth to where we were welcomed into homes and we were safe. Mm, nice. Yeah. So when you so so travel nomads was another organization that did. These, uh, these other tours, non-fishing tours? Yes, yes, uh, yes. They, they don't specialize in the fishing, but if you want to yeah. do a tour, you know, Jim Newman with Triple Dare and Travel Nomads, both are terrific. They really are. Yeah, good, good. Okay, um, so from UB, uh, was it four-wheel drive from UB on out? What was the ground? Yes, sir, like absolutely. Okay. Well, UB and horseback and camel, yeah, it was, we were in four-wheel drives and, I'll tell you what, we sometimes where we needed to go, we would stop and get out and our guides, you know, would go forward trying to find a way, a way through for us. There as we drove across rivers, uh, it was fascinating. I mean, it was, uh, we had several vehicles, so if one got stuck, the other one, uh, could help, but, uh, but it was, it was truly fascinating. I laughed a lot because you'd be driving down this area where maybe Maybe ten other four-wheel drive vehicles had ever driven, and you'd see a tiny little sign. You know, <laughs> I mean, and it was like it would show. You're looking up at this mountain, and they would show a, uh, maybe a six-inch triangular sign that would show a, a vehicle going up a steep grade. You know, and I'd just laugh. You know, because it was. Uh, <laughs> I'd think, how could anybody put a sign on this thing? It's not even a road. We went across. Uh, uh, bridges that were private bridges that you that I'll tell you they were you know we 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 walked across a couple of them and on a couple of them they were toll booths local people and I, we we laughed so hard I laughed till I cried I'm saying that you know they had to take some of that toll money and and build a real bridge here you know? <laughs> oh, yeah did the um, what kind of vehicles did they have 
I mean, what make, models, kind of things? Well, I'm not familiar with the um, – they had a Russian vehicle, two Russian vehicles that were kind of like uh, vans, power wagons. But uh, the, um, the uh, Fly Shot Mongolia guys had, you know, expensive four-wheel drive uh, vehicles. Up there, they really need something uh, that's good. If you get on uh, my site or their site, you can see some of the places they access are on horseback or by camel. I mean, some of the places that they go are, if you, I mean, they have, you know, fixed-sided, uh, real comfortable uh, lodges. But if you want to get out on the edge, like I do often, and my son Jeff does, uh, you know, they can access some of these headwaters uh, all kind of ways. As a matter of fact, one of the partners in the fly shop has a uh, brother that has. Uh, a helicopter company. So we're, we've been talking about that. And the partners, by the way, are Essie, Suki, um, Amara Sims, and Ganbat. And I, I'm going to do the best I can on Ganbat's name because it's got about 18 letters in it. Uh, but it's, it's basically, uh, Seven Regin is the, my best effort at, uh, pronouncing. And these are three young businessmen that opened the first and only fly shop in Mongolia. And we laughed about that, too. I said, you know, uh, that's a good way to go broke. I mean, because in Mongolia, everybody fishes with spinning rods and spinners or, uh, you know, hand lines and things like that. There, there aren't a whole lot of fly fishermen, and I just thought that was a great thought because what they're trying to do is influence the country to change for the benefit of the Taman and the Lenox and so forth. These guys go out and catch them, you know, with grappling hooks, uh, drill through the ice and catch them with live bait and, and kill them or catch them, you know, with uh, lures that have lots of treble hooks on them and so forth. So I commend these three young, bright Mongolians for their effort. So they are trying to uh, do something politically to protect these areas or what's... Yeah, yeah, they are. And in fact... In order for Team Boyd, Jeff and I have a lot of opportunities, and we work on this kind of stuff, but we're really committed to this because there's so much work that has to be done. We talked about specific things, like we want to do some satellite tagging. Like Lennox and Taman, people really don't even know how old they are. That uh, They did a study about 15 years ago in the Egg River, and they found out that the biomass for Taman had dropped 50%. It's rumored, and the, the biggest taman that was ever caught was six feet 11, that we know of, was six feet 11 and weighed 231 pounds, and that was uh, in Russia. They don't catch them like that anymore. It's close relative, the Danube trout or a Hutchin. They're extremely endangered. They're almost extinct. So uh, some people had to step up and do something. The Mongolian government is trying. The problem is, it's a poor country. They don't have, uh, they don't have the money. But, but they're, they're trying to work to protect their headwaters, the government. But there's a lot of money in, from the Chinese and the Russians to open up mines. And those mines are in the same areas that the, the fishing is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um, where did you stay? I mean, did they have fixed camps? Uh, did you set up camp on the fly? What? How was that? Well, 
They did, but we didn't. We they have uh, uh, several lodges. We bypassed them, and we stayed in uh, what they call gear camps. A gear is the traditional type of Mongolian housing, and it's a it's a rather large round tent with a, a hole in the middle. It's a soft walled area, and we would stay typically in those uh, kinds of camps. And it took us, you know, again four days five days just to get to the Tingis uh, Shishked National Park and watershed. So uh, we got a chance to stay in a lot of uh, uh, gear camps. They did build, um, they are building the, the Fly Shop Mongolia, a new uh, site on a, on a lake, but it, it wasn't finished. And that, that's, they have wood cabins, but it's, it wasn't finished, but we stayed there and we roughed it. But it was it was exciting. Even the camp that they put up with us, the tent camp, we had uh, they would over an open fire. They would make hot water for us to take showers. They have a little a boy and girl potty that they made. Uh, we had a little uh, tent dining hall. They sent in it. They brought in a chef, and he was absolutely phenomenal. Especially because we had limited stores. I mean. It wasn't like you could just go to the store. If you didn't bring it, it wasn't there. Nobody had ever been there before. Yeah, yeah. What was the food like? I mean, was it American food? The food that they made for us was great. And we did traditional things. For example, they they asked, you know, would you like, when we were at the the camp on the lake that they were just finishing, I can't pronounce it, uh, but in any event, they said, would you like to have a traditional uh, mutton? And I said, okay. And I, I'm, I said, I'm not a mutton fan, but yeah, if that's the tradition. We'd like to try it. They went right out and grabbed a sheep and killed it right there. And, oh, jeez. I mean, it was not, fresh, I, huh? I told my granddaughters, I said, I don't think you want to see this. But I mean, it's the way they do. They raise all the animals that they raise, Roger, including horses. The five mouths. They call the five mouths. That's they raise horses. And they don't raise, they feed it, but they also eat them. They like to eat the horses because they think they have, they give them uh, great strength and vigor. But the second of the five mouths are, are yaks, and yaks and, the, and cows. They count them as the, as one mouth because they can interbreed. But camels are the third, sheep are the fourth, and goats uh, are the fifth. So those six species comprise the five mouths and everything, everything they raise they slaughter and eat, or they sell, or they take the wool because the yak and the uh, and their uh, goats and lambs they make uh, Mongolian uh, fur, which is uh, cashmere, which is the best in the world. I think it's the best because the conditions, the winters are so harsh with the Arctic winds that their uh, you know their fur, their wool is very very dense. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Did you need any security? Was there any security? Well, we did. It was I've n- never seen anything like this. When we got up to the final fixed camp, the one that they're outfitting, and I, I apologize for not being able to pronounce the name, but uh, the head of the border patrol for that area, and this little village, there was only about you know maybe a thousand people in it, and he came over and talked to us. He didn't speak English, but you know, our guide spoke English, and uh, Essie, one of the three partners, 
uh, he talked to them, and they assigned a, a guard to us. His name was Bobby. He was so friendly, but he also carried an AK-47 with him. And everywhere we went, he went carrying that AK-47. I was teasing well, him about he couldn't shoot any taming, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we were so close to the Siberian border. As a matter of fact, Bobby, and he he, he didn't speak any English, nor did some of our guides, but it's amazing how well we got along, that we communicated. You know yeah. why? Because they're just so darn nice. They're so caring, and they're looking. They they anticipate what you need, and and they do it. I mean, they it's they're just great. And and Bobby, our our guide, uh, our security guard, he came with us, and and we just enjoyed the heck out of him. It was uh, it was really a lot of other than just being immersed in this in incredible culture it, it was uh it was a lot of fun yeah yeah uh okay tom time to take another quick break uh when we come back we'll talk about the fishing and uh what it was like how you did it and so forth so hang tight everyone we'll be right back baja fly fishing company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams and just so there's no mistake they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro from the casual to the hardcore they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching a vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Tom Boyd about Mongolia, a -a one-of-a-kind adventure. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, just go to our homepage and fill out that form and send your question in, and we'll try to answer it on the show tonight. Um, Okay, so, Tom, you've been mentioning a bunch of rivers. How many different rivers did you fish? Well, we only fished three. Three. We had the the Tengus, the Shishked, uh, and a little river called the Goat. Um, So we just fished three, but the the famous rivers there that are well-known and draw a lot of all of the um, outfitters, are the Egg River, the Ur River, the Onan River. Those, the Onan again is in the home, these are all in national parks. The Onan is in the east and it's the headwaters of the Amur, the giant Amur river drainage. And the Amur is, they're protecting that now and that's in northern China. But that's, you might recognize like the Amur tiger, the largest tigers in the world, even larger than Siberian tigers, the Amur leopard. And by the way, these are very severely endangered species. Uh, and this is the headwaters, uh, the Onan, uh, and, and again, the home place and sacred to the Mongols and the home place of uh, Chinggis Khan. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, so how did the rivers differ from one or the other, or were they, you know, uh, all fairly similar as far as depth and, you know. Well, the, 
the the one that stood out as the most different. I mean, the the, the Egg River and the Ur River are are beautiful. They're all beautiful rivers. These are all in national parks. I mean, these are in the most beautiful areas, um, I think, of Mongolia. So they're all beautiful. Uh, the Ur and the Egg River, the uh, the river that flows out of Lake Kosovo, the Shinga, they are all pretty good-sized rivers. I mean, they're you can float them, and for days. I mean, they're all big, long rivers uh, that are productive. The, like some of the others that we fish in the Egg River, they've got uh, Fly Shot Mongolia fishes five smaller rivers as well. Uh, the same thing in the Onan. There's the B A L J. I can't pronounce that, but and three other rivers that they fish, and they're all smaller streams. It, and they're all weightable. They're absolutely loaded with uh, grayling, a bunch of different kind of grayling. And, I mean, you put your fly in the, uh, in the water, and, uh, a dry, any dry fly, and you catch them. It's difficult, say, to catch linnock because the grayling will eat your fly first. But okay. the, the most different river was the Shishkut, and the Shishkut is crystal clear. I mean crystal clear. It's very shallow. It varies from about a, a 50 to 100, over 100 feet wide, maybe even as much as 120 or 30 feet wide. And the thing that really makes it unusual is it, it's in a hurry. I mean, it's, it's fast. You have to, I mean, you have to watch yourself when you're wading. I mean, even if you're wading in only knee-deep water, you can feel, feel uh, the current. And the difference with the Shishkut was in order to protect uh, the taman, you're not allowed to fish from a boat. So you're not allowed to have an anchor. So they have additional rules for that uh, watershed to, you know, restrict and, frankly, make it harder to uh, uh, to catch a taman. Uh, the rules there are fly fishing only, single barbless hook, uh, period. They're not allowed to fish with uh, other kinds of hardware there. And even in the lower sections uh, the, of the Shishkat, they are limited to 140 rods per year. The area that we fished, we're negotiating right now, and we think we're going to have the opportunity to only have 36 rods. So we can have 36 people go there to fish. In, in what period of time? The whole year, the whole year. That oh, starts the whole from year. June. The, the whole year, yeah. These are, they're, they're, and again, these are the Mongolian government, and we hope to talk to them on our next trip, the people that are, because there's only one man, really, that's making the decisions uh, on this, and we, we want to try to get some input there because we have a lot of experience in doing this and protecting, you know, individual species and so forth over the years. Uh, but it's... Uh, it truly, Roger, this is a unique fishery. You can see that they're really trying to do the right thing, but it's lack of resources and a lot of money pushing back the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, now, um, did you fish any lakes this time? I know you said next time. No, we didn't. One, there are a few, a few tame in the lakes, but not many. Next year, we want to, there's one in the mountains, in the high mountains in the west. There's a one river and a few small lakes that have these giant uh, Mongolian grayling. 
and we've talked to the Fly Shop Mongolia guys, and we want to try to do that, uh, especially for the girls because the grayling books are wide open. So, and those are they've got grayling that are 32 inches. I mean, I've caught a lot wow. of grayling, and I've never caught one over 22 or 23. That's about my top. And you catch yeah. a 24 inch grayling, you're doing something. And uh, yeah. they say they have them up there uh, 70 to 80 centimeters. Wow. Wow. Now, um, and then what species did you uh, fish for this time? Okay, well, what we targeted was that were caiman, and they're tough. I mean, they're, I mean, even the best of, there aren't many of them. Uh, they're big. So I targeted especially uh, the taman. But we ha- absolutely had a ball. I mean, we had a ball uh, with the Lenick and, uh, and the Grayling, you know, the Lenick are, are incredible, and you can catch almost as many as you want. The grayling, you can catch as many as you want. I mean, they are uh, – I, I had one of the – we were doing things like, uh, you know, Amara and Essie and Jeff and I were working with the girls uh, on, you know, techniques to catch fish. And one of the guy, one of the other guys came up and said, can I – borrowed one of the fly rods and picked out a, just any little fly and went out and – would make a cast, and within two seconds, he'd have a gray wing. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, so it, wow. it, it, I mean, it's amazing. Now, I know in your notes you, you sent me, you also talking about northern pike. Did you fish for those at all this time? Well, we didn't. We didn't get a chance. We okay. could have. There, there are, and I'll tell you what, they're absolutely amazing. Um, it's They're called the um, Amur pike, and they're, Again, they, they occur over in the Onion and the Amur uh, River drainage. And they get as big as our uh, pike, but they look totally different. I mean, if you look at one of these guys, they look like, uh, they look like they've got some brown trout in their lineage. They have, they're covered with um, big brown spots. And I mean, even their gill plates, even up underneath their eyes, all the way to their caudal fin, their tail fin. I mean, they're just loaded. They don't look like our northern pike, uh, other than the body shape, of course. But right, the uh, mouth. <laughs> yeah, when, when you yeah, the head they're they're you know unmarkable. You know that that's a you know a northern pike. But uh, I'll tell you, their their coloration is completely different. And I'd I'd love to see somebody do some uh, uh, genetic testing on these on a pike compared to uh, you know the pike in, say, North America, northern pike over here. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so let's talk about, that. well, what rods did you bring? Uh, did, I'm sure you brought a selection, but uh, what weights did you Well, we did. One thing that the, the people, uh, Fly Rod Mongolia, they had all their rods uh, already fixed up, but we we had better rods. <laughs> and and we, we used different rods for different things. For example, for... Uh, they recommended that we bring uh, spay rods uh, and nine and ten weight spay rods to cast the giant flies that you have to cast uh, for taming. But um, again, I teach tactics, and so does Jeff. Uh, you know, we've landed. I landed a 340-pound billfish on a uh, you know on a 12 weight rod and a 20-pound tippet. So it was a blue marlin. So I mean, I brought then both Jeff and I used Temple Fork Outfitters. Uh, uh, eight weight. It's a 11 foot switch rod, but we used a new Sage X rod, seven foot ten weights. We used, and 
uh, five weights. They were, you know, for the, uh, for the Lenick and the Grayling. The Grayling, you could have used even a smaller rod, although they fight like the Dickens and they, they're, they're big Grayling there. They really are. Matter of fact, KK, my granddaughter, she caught a really big one. It's a shame. I, I would say it was every bit of, uh, it was over four pounds and the biggest, uh, grayling of all time, all tackle is five pound fifteen ounces, and this was probably in a, in at a good four and a half pounds or so. So, but we couldn't weigh it because our our IGFA certified scale was messed up. But but some of the the, the grayling they, they get big. So um, you had mentioned before, uh, and I believe you said there's no drifting on. Is it all these rivers that we talked about? No, or? no, no. On the Shishka, the Shishka just on the Shishka. is new okay. and the. There's two um, two areas that are uh, absolutely protected, and it's called the Taman Sanctuary. And the first one uh, was established in I think it was 2008, and it's uh, it's about you know 4,000 square kilometers, and it's the Unan and the Amur uh, headwaters. And the second sanctuary, I, I believe, it was. In 2013, I mean, fairly recently, and that's even bigger. That was 650 square kilometers, and it's uh, and that's where this Shishkid and Tengus and some of these uh, rivers are. So, uh, so there's there's new regulations, and the toughest ones that I'm aware of, both in restricting the number of rods and how you can fish, are in the Shishkid and Tengus watershed. Okay, so there you had to wait fish. So I, did you just drive up to an area and work that area up and down the river for a period of time and then move in the vehicles to another area? Is that? It, and, and I'll tell you, it was really exciting because this isn't – normally when, when you go to, like, to the Egg or the Ur, they're known rivers. They're, they've fished these since probably back in the uh, 80s and some of the outfitters since the 90s. So their guides, they know every inch of those rivers. You know, they might float a stretch of 10 or 20 or 50 miles but uh, or more, but, you know, they know the river. They know, you know, where the fish are. Where we were at was a total exploratory trip. I mean, uh, I was with uh, Amara once, and we had an uh, uh, inflatable uh, boat with, uh, you know, uh, a jet boat engine, and we we almost bought the farm. I mean, we filled right up with water in a tough area, you know, because we were exploring. I mean, we were looking for areas. It wasn't like everybody knew. Like behind that rock, there, there's a there's a big taman, uh, you know. So right. we went down the river looking for areas, um, you know, that might hold taman. And I'll tell you, these guys are guides. They are. I've got good vision for. Uh, fish and and so does Jeff, but these guys were better. They boy, they could uh, they could really see fish. You know, uh, we saw yeah. lots of them. They saw a lot more. So um, so did you use the where you did use boats? Is it mainly for transportation rather than fishing? Oh yeah, boat? yeah. It, it, okay. We would get down. We in fact we did. Uh, you could choose whatever we wanted to do, whatever species we wanted to go for. I mean. Uh, whether we're going to go out for half a day or a full day. Uh, a couple of times we even had, you know, remote spike camps. You know, we'd take uh, our gear and head, you know, um, upstream, you know, 10 miles or whatever. And 
you know, set up a campsite overnight, you know, and the guys would cook. And, and by the way, the, the, it was unbelievable how good, the, the, you know, they made food. But that's how we would do yeah. And we would we would spread out. There were only five of us, but we would spread out on the river. I, you know, we would we tried to vary, you know, who we fished with. Uh, Mike Marshall, yeah. my, my granddaughters, Jeff and I. Jeff and I didn't fish together uh, too much, and normally we're inseparable. Normally we go everywhere together, you know, fish together, research together, and so forth. But since we're professionals, we, you know, we divided up to try to uh, help the girls, and they really did well, and Mike Marshall yeah. as well. Yeah, cool. Uh, well, we, let's take another quick break here, and then when we come back, let's talk about each of the fish and uh, and uh, what it was like fishing for them. So uh, hang tight with me, Tom. We'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware in New York and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats, like the Peacock Bath Study in Miami, Florida. Uh, Fly Fishers International's core values remain unchanged, to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all of fish to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can enjoy, uh, continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Tom Boyd about Mongolia, one of a kind adventure. If you'd like to ask a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, and uh, we'll try to answer your questions tonight on the show. Okay, Tom, let's let's break these fish down in the last segment we have here. Uh, let's talk about the taming first of all. Describe the fish and, you know, its characteristics and so forth and what you learned about it when you were over there. Well, the taming are, one, they're the largest member of the Samanidae family, which includes uh, salmon, uh, trout, and whitefish. The largest on record that I mentioned before uh, was 6 feet 11 inches long. They say in days uh, gone by that they were even uh, even uh, bigger. They're a potomoraminous fish, which means they just uh, are completely freshwater. They don't go uh, in the salt. They exist in both the Arctic drainage and the Pacific drainage. They're primarily piscivorous, which means they eat uh, fish. But of all the uh, salmonids, I believe they are the most aggressive. They really are. I mean, on top, they'll eat uh, uh, ducks, uh, muskrats, uh, rats, anything that moves on top. As a matter of fact, they've been known to eat beavers. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, do you have any beaver flies with you? I mean, they're incredible. (laughs) I mean, <laughs> uh, you have to bring a whole suitcase just for the, the beaver flies. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, some of the ones we had, uh, uh, we had uh, Pat Cohen and Tammy Ziegler tie flies for us, and they're a couple of the best tires, especially with deer hair, you know, on planet Earth. 
and some of the flies, we had to go get special fly boxes just to hold these. And, for example, the first time uh, I was fishing with Mike and we saw a taman behind a rock going by that was over five feet long, and we stopped and I jumped up on this rock because I was up, and my guide saw the size of the taman, and he took three of these beautiful, beautiful, giant uh, 10-inch, 11-inch flies, grabbed three of them, tied them all together, <laughs> and I flipped this. It looked like a, a damn colored mop flipped it, <laughs> and this taman came right after it, and and the fool missed it. He, uh, You know, I, I didn't get him, but I'll tell you what, that would have been, um, I just, he was right there, fearless, and so I don't think you could throw a fly that was too big. Uh, it, it was incredible. But the tame so they, they're, they're, they're not uh, particularly spooky? Oh, no. They're, they're aggressive. Well, in here, there's no sophistication here. It's not like, you know, you get a brown trout and, you know, you catch them a couple of times and it's really hard to catch them again. They become sophisticated. These They've never seen a, uh, a fly. Plus, uh, the tame, and one of the reasons they're endangered is they're they're so aggressive. They're difficult to catch because their numbers are down. But, boy, they're, they'll come from far away. You don't have to have a perfect drift or a dry drift. They'll come up and take dry flies. They really do. They they are more aggressive on the surface than anything I know. And their first move, you think you have a steelhead or an Atlantic salmon, their first move is up. They jump like crazy. But in appearance, they're long, they're slender. They're more slender than any of the other salmon species and most of the other uh, trout species. They have their characteristic color is the their caudal fin, their tail fin uh, is kind of like an orange-brown, and their anal fin is orange-brown and part of the rear part of their uh, body. That's their characteristic signature. And when it comes time for spawn, they get uh, redder. But they're, they're a beautiful fish, but what what separates them is their size. I mean, they get the uh, 40 inches considered a good fish. 50 inches and up is a trophy fish. The IGFA record is about, it's in the 90s. I forget, 92, 93 pounds, something like that. But if we were fly fishing for them or any kind of fishing for them 100 years ago, stories that I've heard are that they're, they're, they were over 250 or 300 pounds. I mean, oh, in fact... And the Arctic drainage where, where they, or the Pacific drainage rather, where they cohabit with king salmon, they eat king salmon. Where's your king salmon fly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what kind of flies so, did you uh, take over there to use then? And what, what, well, what we size took, were they? We took, uh, we emulated grayling. They're one, they're one of their, as piscivores, they eat other fish. So, uh, most of our streamer patterns that we took were uh, emulated grayling, uh, lenock, and small taman because they eat their own. We also took on top, we took some really big articulated rat patterns. These are not counting the tail. They would be six or seven inch long flies and bulky. I mean, these were, you know, deer hair patterns. We also took some uh, gurglers. They work. Uh, white gurglers that may, might emulate, you know, grayling on top. So th- those were the primary patterns. However, if there was a prevailing hatch, these taman, they'll come up and eat flies. And for 
the best opportunity. There's lots and lots of grasshoppers. I mean, I filmed one day four in ten steps, four different species of grasshopper. It's, they're loaded. So the taimen will eat those grasshoppers like crazy when they're, when they're available. And they also, Amara was just in teaching the girls, he put on, uh, he didn't use uh, an indicator, but he fished a nymph and oh. caught, uh, you know, maybe about a, thir- a small, but about a 30-inch taimen. So they were talking about in grasshopper season, you know, uh, using the grasshopper fly as uh, your indicator and put a nymph uh, dropper. And they said you could catch some uh, big taimen that way. So you were catch- uh, so you do run into smaller taimen as well, huh? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, the biggest taimen that I got, was was only 40 inches but it took a big grayling pattern and and i'll tell you what he hit that i mean they are so aggressive and immediately he was airborne and before i could even you know get him on the reel he'd already you know made four or five jumps and i'll tell you what they are really really strong they are spectacular uh fighters they truly are and when i'll tell you what when i got him in i I thought, and I'm pretty good at this. I mean, I've caught a fish or two in my time, and I thought he was a bigger fish. When I got him in and he was only 40 inches, he fought bigger than that. It was one heck of a uh, heck of a fight. Now, um, the um, well, we had a we had a question here. These are are not in particularly deep water, right? For the most part, no. I mean. No, they're not. That you're fishing for these fish in. It, pretty shallow. I mean, they'll hold out in a deeper hole, but they're they're they like the white water, Roger. I mean, these guys are up in the white water, and typically the white water is the shallow water. They like that. They're high energy fish, and they like that high oxygen rate. That I don't know. Um, you know, maybe rainbows will hold in water that's you know fast like this, but. You know, like the Lennox, we would find them in frog water or back eddies or next to the current. Occasionally we saw a tame in there, but mo- we fished the white water. I mean, that, and the big fish. So is that white water maybe white... three feet deep or so? I mean, on average or deeper? Well, yeah, I would say probably some, some less than that, but probably in, in the area from maybe two to uh, five feet in, in that range. Okay. I mean, again, okay. it, it was eminently weightable as far as depth goes, but you had to watch yourself with the speed yeah. of the current. Now, uh, Phil in uh, Kentucky wrote in here on the Internet. He says, I get the impression that uh, Tamen have no deep water to head for when hooked. Is the fight that takes place a chaotic battle in shallow water? It pretty much is, yeah. It pre- it's chaotic. I, I, I haven't caught one in a lake, but I think it would be chaotic in a lake, too, But because they are a chaotic fish. They're, they are, you know, I, I just wrote an article, again, uh, on them last night, and, and I used, and I don't normally do this, but I said they are one angry, pissed-off fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Upset their day, huh? Yeah. Absolutely. Now, do you, do you, do you Absolutely. sight fish for the the taimen or? 
Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, and, and okay. that's one thing about that I really like, uh, and that's not always. You can't, you, you know, some of the rivers uh, or sometimes early in the season, the waters haven't cleared as well. They're not as clear as they are late in the season when they're, the water's lower and clearer. But, yeah, we did. That's, we, were, we spent half our time looking and the other yeah. half fishing. We, were, we, were, we would go find where we either where we know there were fish because we saw them or where it looked like, you know, this was, there would be fish there. And that's the kind of water. Then we had to get to shore and then, you know, try to get, uh, you know, try to get a favorable position to, you know, to cast to them. Right, right. Uh, let's talk about the Lenick. Uh, describe that fish for me. It's the oldest species of trout. I mean, they look uh, they look a lot like a brown trout. They're, they're beautiful fish, but the one big difference is they have an underbite. They look like they've got a, maybe a little bit of bonefish in their ancestry, because they look uh, like a brown trout. They've got um, you know they're they're kind of like uh, from a a silver yellow to a silver brown with lots of big brown spots, and I mean lots, probably more than brown trout uh, on average. But they have like bands of orange on their side. They're, they're beautiful, and in fact, when they when the spawn comes, they turn red. I again, that's they spawn in the spring, so we weren't afforded. But they're they're beautiful fish, even before they you know color up on the spawn. As far as Numbers, there are quite a few of them. Their range is somewhat smaller than what it used to be. They're easy to catch. They're quite the opposite of brown trout in that uh, uh, they're not sophisticated. They'll eat anything. They really do. If the grayling doesn't get it, they will. And they eat grayling as well. We used uh, dry flies. KK and Julia were using, uh, uh, let me see if I can remember. They were using uh, orange stimulators. They were using uh, yellow grasshoppers they were using orange bombers they had a lot of fun with those they caught a few on using uh, uh, nymphs they were using uh, 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 prince and they caught them with uh, prince nymphs and they fought well they don't jump like the caiman do but we've had them uh, jump a couple times the largest one the the record is the all tackle record is nine pounds in days of old they were said to reach at 100 pounds. Today, they say that about the biggest known would get up to about 20 pounds, but the potential is there for them to get uh, bigger. But they're very slow-growing, like Taman are. Taman, I think, and Lennox, when, now that they're protected, I'll bet as the years go by, we're going to be catching bigger and bigger fish because they're long-lived fish. You know, uh, trout in this country, in our country, don't live that long. These guys... Taman, maybe 55 years. Nobody really knows, but they think that's, you know, that, that's possible. So the Lennox, I caught one um, on a uh, weighted, I, I was using a floating line, weight forward floating, and, but I put on a big black articulated leech pattern, and I caught a 6.44-pound uh, uh, Lennox. That was my biggest fish. I think uh, uh, Julia and uh, Mike and KK all caught bigger fish than that, uh, but they said to break that nine-pound record, if we spent any time specializing on Lennox up on the Shishkit, that would be an easy thing to do. That's what, you know, Essie and Amara and Ganbat said. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Um, and then finally, the, the grayling. Tell us about the grayling there and how, 
you know, I, I'm familiar with grayling from Alaska and so forth. How do they differ, the ones that you were Arctic. Well, they have the Arctic grayling. We didn't catch any of them. We Mostly what we caught, and these are really distinctive, were golden-tailed grayling. And all, I mean, you go back and they look like our uh, Arctic grayling that we catch here in North America, and except you get back, the last uh, uh, third or quarter of their body is yellow. Boom, all of a sudden, it just turns to yellow. They're absolutely stunning fish. They also, um, uh, in the east, in the, there's an Amur grayling uh, that's different, and I mentioned earlier there's a, what they call the giant Mongolian grayling, or they refer to it as the black grayling. And that's the one that we hope to fish for next year. And uh, Amara and Essie, our guides, they said that in the mountains there's only one watershed that contains these fish. And they said, again, they were uh, 70 to uh, 80 centimeters, and that, that translates to 32 uh, inches. And they showed us a couple of pictures uh, that, that they had. As a matter of fact, the first picture that they showed me, and these are black, uh, I, I looked, they, and Essie said, look at this. And I said, what the heck is that? And then I looked, because the, the fin wasn't up, the, uh, the dorsal fin wasn't up. It was down, and it was black, and it was huge. And he said, that's a grayling. And I looked at it, and I said, you know, by gosh, that is a grayling. You know, I said, what in the heck kind of grayling is that? I'd never even heard of it. And here I am, I think, you know, I think we know as much about the salmonid family as anybody ever and that was a new one on me but again one single watershed and they're big and all all three of these were all basically in the same water oh yeah the same, same water the same the, the golden yeah the golden yes and if you went to the east on the onion you would find uh the amur and over there they have the amur trout that's another Great, that they're as big as the uh, Lennox, on average even bigger, and that's another unique species, the uh, Amur trout. They, they look a lot like a brown trout as well, but they don't have the underbite like, uh, like the Lennox does. And, again, trophy, tough, uh, they tell me, again, I haven't caught any because we didn't fish over in that watershed. Uh, it's a, it was a, more than 1,000 miles away, but they say they, they really are similar to fighting, you know, brown trout, uh, you know, they're really a trophy, uh, hard fighting fish. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, but in any one of these watersheds that you were fishing in, you could you could catch a time in a Lenica or a Grayling all within the same river. Uh, maybe different. And we did. As a matter of fact, yeah. I know okay. KK. Our first day when we got in, it was in the, uh, you know, we got in, you know, fairly late, and she went right where our campsite was at. She went out with dries and. Uh, caught all three on dries. She caught a salmon, <laughs> a lenick, and a ton of. She actually she caught a, uh, I think two lenick and a, a bunch of grayling and one taman. So yeah, there wow. they were. And this is at our. That's a good start. <laughs> waited out at our campsite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were having very a beer. <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. Well, uh, Tom, it's time to wrap this up. But um, thanks. Uh, Stay with me just a, a few more minutes. We're going to try to give away our book and a few passes here and some other prizes. So hang tight with me just a few more minutes, and we'll, we'll do that. Uh, the we'll Bristol do. Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. 
The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry has united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org to learn more and to get involved. Again, visit SaveBristolBay.org. Uh, just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link in, on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, What did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away a few prizes. Um, and The winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do for our next show uh, so you have a chance to win one of these great uh, prizes. Now, if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and uh, get the information from you so that we can uh, uh, get the, the prizes out to you. The first thing we're going to give away tonight is a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about them, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support. They're doing a lot with conservation, and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy being a, a part of that. Our winner for that is Scott Nelson in Oregon. Scott Nelson in Oregon. So congratulations, Scott. I know Scott's been a long-time listener, so I'm glad you were able to uh, to, to win this prize. Uh, the second thing we're giving away is a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Time Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. Again, uh, this is Fly Fishing and Tying Journal at amatobooks.com. So check out uh, their site. They have all kinds of periodicals as well as books on fly fishing. I'm sure you'll find something there that will interest you. Um, our winner for that is Andy Cordova. Andy Cordova, another longtime listener in Nevada. So, um, uh, Andy, congratulations on uh, getting that subscription, and uh, hope you have fun tying some of the flies that uh, that they uh, have in that uh, in that journal. Um, so now what we'll do is we'll give away a um, we'll give away a copy of Tom's upcoming book. You'll have to wait a couple months to get it, but uh, it'll be well worth it, I'm sure. And uh, and we'll give away a couple of uh, passes to um, uh, the fly fishing show. So uh, hopefully there's one near you. Uh, the fly fishing show uh, this year um, is. Uh, we're going to start out in Denver, uh, then go to Marlboro, Massachusetts, and uh, then Edison, New Jersey, uh, Linwood, Washington, Pleasanton, California, and then Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So uh, it would be any one of those shows that uh, you would be able to attend. So um, let's just throw this out here. Uh, I'll make this pretty easy tonight. Uh, what was the uh, length of the world record uh, time and to date? Uh, payment to date uh, that uh, Tom talked about. Uh, what was that length of that fish? And uh, so, Tom, we'll see if we had any good uh, note takers here, and listeners, and see if we can't get some winners. And they're waiting for... Uh, Somebody to provide an answer here. Keep refreshing my queue here. Okay. Starting to get some answers in here.
And it looks like we've got uh, some people that are right on track here. Um, looks like we've got Rod Brashears and Amarillo, uh, six foot 11 inches. Was that the right answer, uh, Tom? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, Rod, you just won uh, Tom's book, uh, Trout, Salmon, and Char, uh, from Wild River Press. So, Rod, you'll have to send me your... Um, your address, uh, your shipping address, and you can do it in the same box you just answered the question in. And uh, uh, then when that book is released, we'll get a copy out to you. Like we say, we're thinking it's a December time period. So congratulations on that. And uh, our second winner is Phil in California, Kentucky, 6 feet 11 inches, right answer too. So, Phil, you just got your ticket to one of the fly fishing shows. And um, uh, a Again, uh, Phil, I've, you know, I'll ask you for your information again because uh, I don't keep it <laughs> around, but uh, uh, send that over to me as well, and we'll get you uh, information on how you can get your ticket. And then our third winner is John Matier in Denver, six foot eleven inches, uh, and uh, for sure, you know, you can go to the show in January in Denver there, John. So. We'll get you a pass for that show as well. Again, send me your, I got your email address, send me your address, uh, and, uh, and we'll get you all set up. So thanks everyone for, um, playing tonight and, uh, paying attention and, uh, enjoying the show. And Tom, thank you again. This is the third show we've done together. It's always a pleasure. And, uh, hopefully there'll be many more to come and, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and thanks for sharing your, your experience. We're scheduled to do the show on the book on January the 2nd, I think, Roger. That's right. We have one coming right up. and uh, So you're going to have uh, so to put up with me again. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well. <laughs> and that's right around the show time, too, isn't it? Let's see, the show in January yeah, 5th and 6th. Yeah, that show is right after that, yes. Yeah, yeah, so uh, it's going to be a busy month. Be lecturing. I'm at all the shows. I'm at all the fly fishing shows. Oh, at all of them. Okay, okay, good, good. So, uh, so we've got a busy month and uh, busy couple months there for Tom. Uh, looking forward, but uh, thanks again for for sharing with us and taking your time out of your your busy schedule. <laughs> so, I uh, appreciate pleasure. it. Yeah, it was uh, hopefully, hopefully, all of you have found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. Uh, click on that. You get into the archive. You can search for past shows that we've done. We've done over 280 shows, which you can search for by keyword or keyword phrase, you know, like trout or tarpon or uh, attainment or, or whatever. And uh, you'll find all kinds of shows that we've done over the past uh, 12 years. So uh, explore it. I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised. Our next broadcast will be on November 7th, and it will be 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, we'll interview Chester Allen. And our topic for the show will be Yellowstone Runners. Uh, Chester has fished the migration run of the rainbow and brown trout from Montana's Hebgen Lake into Yellowstone's National Park's Madison River during the fall for many years. Uh, join us and learn about where to fish, what flies to use, and how to find the best water for very large trout. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Watermaster, Baja Fly Fishing, uh, Wild River Press, and the Fly Fishing Show for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.